The Water Values Podcast, Session 21. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. And thanks again to my son, Joey, for providing the intro and outro voiceovers. So stay tuned to the end to hear Joey's outro voiceover and the all-important disclaimer. Well, today's show is fantastic, and not because of me, but because we're fortunate to welcome yet another top-quality guest to the Water Values Podcast. Dr. David Sedlak of UC Berkeley joins us to talk about how our urban water systems developed and how he sees the next generation of urban water systems developing. He provides a clear and articulate vision, which I'm sure you will find fascinating. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Dr. Sedlak, thank you so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. To start off, uh, do you mind if I call you David? No, it's fine as long as I can call you Dave. Well, of course. Uh, Terrific. Well, uh, to start off, David, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, I'm a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UC Berkeley, but um, I got here through a bit of a circuitous path. I think I was initially fascinated with water growing up in New York along the shore and seeing the marine environment and knew that I wanted to do something in my career to study water. And the thing that really attracted me to water was the connection to chemistry. So I pursued a background of Uh, chemistry and biochemistry and ecology related to water. And it wasn't until years later that I discovered the importance of combining that knowledge of environmental chemistry with environmental engineering, because the engineering is really the way in which we're able to move water around, treat water, and provide water for society. So um, I eventually found myself surrounded by civil engineers and environmental engineers and realized I'd found a home. Oh, terrific. And you've written a book called Water 4.0, and it, t- it really walks us through the history of water infrastructure and urban water in particular. Could you talk about, you know, the concept behind Water 4.0? Well, before sitting down to write this book, Dave, I read a number of the other books that were out there about water and recognized that water is such a huge subject that to really have uh, an impact on people's view of it, you had to think about a more specific application than just saying, okay, there's water everywhere and there's all these problems with water, now we want to fix them. And I realized the place where water touches people's lives very directly is in the urban environment. That is, when we turn on the tap and the water comes out or doesn't come out, and the water that we use that goes out into the environment and has to be disposed of. And so I decided to focus the book on water and think about how water affects our daily lives because most of us live in cities or live in suburbs where water is supplied to us through a central distribution system and it's treated by a central treatment plant. And so I came up with the idea of rather than talking about where we are now and what our problems are, to go back in history and think about how we got to the situation we're in. Because what I've learned is that the history of water and the way in which we built our water systems has created the conditions that are classic uh, example of a you can't get there from here problem. 
So you have this system, you've invested a lot of money, you've developed institutions that support it, and now you want to change it to address a new set of problems, and you have to understand what you have before you can understand how to get the next water system that you really want. Interesting. Can, so let's talk about how we how we got to where we are today in that historical uh, perspective. So, you know, when you start your book, you start off with Water 1.0, and that's the Romans. If you could tell us a little about how how Water 1.0 developed. Sure. So calling calling it Water 4.0 is is a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a sense of humor kind of trying to relate the, the water system that we have to the computer operating systems that we have. So they go through different iterations. So you have Windows 1.0 followed by 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, et cetera. Same thing can be said about water. We go through different iterations where we have a water system that gets invented and established, and then it undergoes some revisions. So maybe you go from version 1.0 to 1.1 and 1.2 and 1.3, but eventually you decide that the system you have needs a major upgrade and you call that upgrade 2.0. So just like your computer, you do this with the water system. And I called water 1.0, or I gave credit for water 1.0 to the Romans because they're the ones who developed or perfected the approach for importing water into cities, distributing around cities, and disposing of it after it's done. So lots of civilizations before the Romans um, needed water and had uh, prototypes of systems to import water or distribute water, but it was really the Romans and their very um, relatively high population, that is the population of Rome at the height of the empire was close to a million people, um, that high population and wealth gave them not only motivation, but a means of building a relatively sophisticated system of importing water, distributing it, and disposing of it. Right. And w what led to the need for that second major upgrade uh, to get, get us to water 2.0? Well, so the, uh, the first version of water 1.0 um, kind of after the fall of the Roman Empire, people more or less forgot about it. That is, cities became a lot smaller, and there wasn't really a need for massive imported water systems. But at the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, cities once again grew to populations approaching a million people, and there was a need for imported water systems. But there was a difference, and the difference was during the Industrial Revolutions, we had uh, steam engines and we had water wheels and we had the means of manufacturing pipes that could hold pressurized water. So now when we adopted that system of importing water, we had this extra technological advantage that we could distribute that water around the city and bring it into people's houses and not only the ground floor of houses, but up, up to higher floors. And that meant that people suddenly had an ample supply of fresh water in their homes, and one of the first things they did was they used that water to install toilets and bathtubs. And the per capita water use greatly escalated, and it created a waste disposal problem. So you no longer could, uh, we're putting all of the human waste into septic tanks and latrines that could be um, taken away out of the city. You were diluting it with lots of water, and the logical place to put all those wastes was down into the sewer. So before people had pressurized water in their houses, 
sewers were really mainly for draining excess water out of the city, whether that was rainwater or extra water flowing out of fountains. And it was contaminated, but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as it was after people started putting human waste down into the sewer system. And so that created the preconditions for Water 2.0, because the upstream cities now were discharging large amounts of water that was contaminated with waterborne pathogens, and the folks living downstream ended up using that water for their water supply. And so you had outbreaks of cholera and typhoid fever that were happening in downstream cities. So many downstream cities just decided when that happened to go and seek clean, uncontaminated sources. And if they were lucky in terms of their uh, hydrology or uh, their location, they could just do that. They could put in a new canal or they could dig a new set of wells. But some cities didn't have that luxury. And those cities were the ones who had to uh, come up with a way of treating this sewage-contaminated drinking water, and that was Water 2.0. So the advent of the slow sand filter and later on water chlorination made it possible for people to drink surface water uh, that was contaminated with waste from upstream communities. Right. And, and in the book, you go into uh, a case study that really helped prove this in Massachusetts. Could you talk a little about how actually we you know, society figured out that um, these waterborne pathogens from upstream waste were causing a lot of these diseases? Sure, Dave. Um, so at that time, uh, one of the best examples of people grappling with this problem of sewage contaminated water was the, the town of Lawrence on the Merrimack River in Massachusetts. And Lawrence was a mill town, and it was uh, located just downstream from Lowell, about uh, 15 miles downstream. And at the time of like the 1890s, there were large outbreaks of typhoid fever from this sewage contaminated water. And so the, uh, the state was very concerned about this public health problem and they built an experimental station there that was staffed by faculty members and researchers from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the MIT researchers studied ways of removing waterborne pathogens from sewage-contaminated surface waters, and the one that they found worked best was something called the slow sand filter. And so they took a technology that people had experimented with uh, in the previous decades, and they really tried to understand how it was that microbes were removed in a sand filter and they perfected the technology for operating those sand filters. And their original sand filters look a lot like the slow sand filters that are still used in some cities around the world today. So they combined the growing knowledge of microbiology and public health with uh, microscopy, which was getting much better at the time, and the design of pilot-scale treatment facilities to see that they could actually remove uh, typhoid fever from the water. It's just absolutely fascinating, that, that uh, research that was performed there. Um, so the the filtration, though, does seem to be, uh, it, it, its genesis was a reaction to the waterborne pathogens. And Water 3.0 comes from making sure, or at least attempting to make sure that those pathogens don't enter the water, water course to begin with. So can you talk a little about how Water 3.0 developed and 
Well, actually, actually, Dave, Water 3.0, which, I mean, to cut to the chase, is, is sewage treatment, um, wasn't really a response to concerns about public health and downstream communities. It was more of a response to the aesthetic insult of sewage discharge and also the effects of sewage on surface waters. And so during this time period, you could go back and read in the discussions among the engineers of the day how people thought it wasn't worthwhile to treat sewage because there were so many other things that were going to contaminate the drinking water supply anyway. And so to protect public health, people focused on drinking water. And some cities uh, started to experiment with sewage treatment that would be activated sludge and trickling filters. And so in the first decades of the 20th century, uh, a few cities ended up building sewage treatment plants, and that was mainly a response to the terrible stench that was coming out of the sewers in the downtown parts of cities or the dead fish that were washing up on stream banks. And this technology um, was used in some places, but there weren't really large investments made in sewage treatment until the 1970s and the environmental movement. So you had a technology that developed and had been around for 40 or 50 years before people got serious about actually um, installing it. And so it, it took the Cuyahoga River catching on fire and Silent Spring, the book by Rachel Carson, which explained some of the uh, risks associated with putting chemicals in the environment and that overall sense of the environmental movement that something had to be done about uh, the Great Lakes dying and rivers being polluted and the shovel-ready response to water pollution was to build more sewage treatment plants. And so by the time 1972 and the Clean Water Act came along, there were plenty of sewage treatment plants, but they tended to be inadequate. People realized that building sewage treatment plants would have a tremendous impact on water quality, but no one could get together the political will to do it. And it took a catalyzing event like a river catching on fire and a public turning its attention to water pollution to allow that third revolution to happen. And that third revolution opened up federal support for underwriting the expenses of building modern sewage treatment plants. So in a 20-year period from about 1972 to 1992, we seriously upgraded our sewage treatment plants with the goal of making surface waters uh, fishable, swimmable, and certainly drinkable, but I really think it was the third priority because we really didn't have uh, the public health problems that we had at the turn of the century with typhoid fever and cholera by the time we were installing sewage treatment plants. All right. Well, terrific. I, you've laid a fantastic foundation here to talk about the next step, but there's still one question that I have is, is why do you sense that a new revolution is is needed? Why why are we going to need water 4.0? We've already got got you know two, which was uh, filtration and chlorination, and three, which was wastewater treatment. So why what's causing the need for water 4.0? Well, we can see the evidence of our system not meeting our expectations all around us, Dave. So you know if you're in a part of the world where um, water supply is a concern. You can see regions of the country or other parts of the world where um, climate change and uh, population growth and competition for water resources means that we can't rely on the imported water 
that was the basis for Water 1.0 to meet all of our needs. So all around the world, you can see examples of cities that are struggling with the problem of how they're going to supply enough water for their communities in the future. In other parts of the world and other parts of the United States, we have too much water. So we built our systems, uh, our urban water systems, with this uh, secondary goal of assuring urban drainage to avoid flooding in cities. And we can see more and more evidence that either um, it's very difficult to maintain those systems and prevent uh, combined sewer overflows and urban flooding, and simply putting more money into more of the same could be a, a, a path that we don't want to go down. And so between uh, having too much water in some places, too little water in other places, and the third aspect of it being water pollution in still other places, you know, we see uh, evidence for um, even though we spent all of this money on upgrading sewage treatment plants, we still have uh, coastal systems and estuaries where there are too many nutrients going in and simply upgrading the sewage treatment plants isn't going to uh, help us achieve our results of protecting surface water. So you can see uh, everything fraying around the edges and then you can put on top of that uh, the, the so-called uh, underinvestment in infrastructure that, uh, that we always hear about from uh, people responsible for maintaining uh, the pipes that make the the water distribution systems and sewage treatment systems work. And with the, the challenges of keeping that system together, it's hard to imagine making a lot of progress uh, in the current mode. Right. Now, you also talk in the book about uh, exotic contaminants that are being found in rivers and streams. Could you address um, address that subject? Sure. I mean, in, in some ways, the fact that we observe the effects of these compounds uh, is testament to how much things have improved. So at one time we were dumping raw sewage into rivers and the, the fish couldn't survive because there was no oxygen or there was too much ammonia around. So now we've built sewage treatment plants to, um, to remove the organic matter from our wastes and to remove the uh, ammonia from our wastes. And we thought that that would be enough to, to protect the environment. But we realize now that there are also these trace amounts of organic chemicals in our waste that we put down the sewer, and they're not being fully removed in sewage treatment plants. And so many of the compounds are, but a few of the compounds that make it through the treatment plant uh, can be there at concentrations that are enough to af affect the, um, the health of aquatic organisms. So the place where most of this attention started was in the early 1990s in uh, the area around London where fishermen started observing feminized fish, that is, fish that uh, were genotypically uh, male but phenotypically female. That is, they, they were supposed to be males, but you could see uh, ova growing in their testes. And the research that was done in response to that indicated that uh, things like ethanyl estradiol, the active ingredient in the birth control pill, and 17-beta-estradiol, the, uh, the estrogen that we all excrete in our urine, was responsible. And so, and then, and then the follow-on research has identified a number of other compounds. Some of them are human pharmaceuticals that we take for our health and don't fully metabolize and aren't removed in the sewage treatment plants. And some of them are compounds in consumer products that are everyday products that we use in our homes and 
they're, they're fine, they don't harm us, but when they go out into the environment, they can cause damage to aquatic organisms. And so, you know, there are some things that we can all do as consumers. There are probably some products that we can avoid using because we didn't really need them, but most of us are unwilling to give up the medicines that keep us healthy. And so there are ways in which we can upgrade our sewage treatment plants to remove these compounds that, uh, you know, the original designers of the treatment plants had no idea about. And that's being done in some parts of the world. Very interesting. And, you know, you talk about the upgrades to these treatment plants that are needed. And as you referenced earlier, uh, our infrastructure is fraying. So it seems like we're coming up on a crossroads where we're going to need massive investment in our water infrastructure. And how can we, how can we best use uh, the funds that we're going to expend on that infrastructure to meet the vision of water 4.0? Well, the reason I, I made the analogy to upgrades of, of computer programs and thinking about a fourth uh, system of water is that um, I expect that these changes will come in the way that most technological revolutions occur. That is, they'll start at the front lines or the places that are most in need of change. And so my expectation is that places in the world that are struggling for water supplies are going to pioneer new technologies either uh, of, for obtaining local water sources. So whether that's uh, water recycling or stormwater capture and use or seawater desalination, those cities that are really stressed for finding new sources of water will make those big investments and they'll learn some lessons. And some of those lessons will be expensive because in the case of technologies, it's the uh, early adopters and the innovators who, uh, who make the mistakes for us and who develop the techniques that eventually get less and less expensive and more and more reliable. And I think in all areas of the fraying edges of Water 3.0, we're going to see pioneers. So in the area of uh, urban drainage and, and, and stormwater uh, management in cities, there are cities that are facing real concerns now about uh, combined sewer overflows and flooding that are in the process of figuring out what green infrastructure is going to look like and whether that green infrastructure can be more effective than the traditional gray infrastructure that we use for urban drainage. And once they figure it out, it's going to be easier for cities and other parts of the world to adopt that, and it's going to be less expensive for them to build those systems. Right. And you, you give a couple different possibilities for Water 4.0. You have the, the centralized system, but you also have what you described as a more radical approach, which, which is more um, homeowner-specific sourcing and treatment. Uh, could you talk about those those two visions for Water 4.0? Sure, Dave. And may, maybe we could even think of them as Water 4.0 and 4.1 because sure. the, the centralized version of uh, a new way of, of doing things with urban water seems like it's closer at hand. So we've created institutions uh, for delivering water and treating water and managing water. And those institutions, for a variety of reasons, function well with the centralized system. And so the direction you can see things going in, in in all parts of the world now are that um, it's these same players, the centralized utilities, the um, the regulatory agencies and, and, and the like who are um, comfortable with 
providing water and just having an upgrade to make sure that the centralized system works better. But there's also this promise of distributed treatment systems where we could treat water and source water at the scale of um, an apartment complex or an office park or even our individual homes. And that opens up the possibility of breaking free of the water grid, if you want to think about the distribution system of, that brings us our water and takes it away, just analogously to the electric grid. And if we can do that, we avoid some of the tremendous costs associated with maintaining all of these underground pipes and many of the energy costs associated with pumping water all around our cities. And so people are very intrigued and captivated by the idea of, you know, maybe your water doesn't have to come from uh, a river that's 100 miles away. Maybe you could be collecting the rainwater from your roof and the shallow groundwater from your yard and recycling the water within your home. And with that approach, um, breaking free of, of the constraints and the tremendous expense of the centralized system. I think it's not quite ready for prime time, but it's one that we really need to explore because it has a lot of potential to solve some of the most vexing problems that uh, that Water 3.0 is facing. Yeah, that's what really grabbed my attention when I read the book was the uh, the distributed water network, uh, or distributed water system. Uh, very familiar with it from uh, from the electric grid standpoint, and that's that's a concept I hadn't really thought about what you mentioned the vexing problems of water 3.0 what would that distributed water system what are the problems that specifically uh, that distributed water system would would help solve well the, the problems it would help solve is our decaying underground infrastructure so our cities now if you look at individual cities or utilities a lot of their budget is spent on fixing decaying pipes. So, you know, we, we installed these pipes 50 or 60 years ago, and, you know, like, like all things made out of concrete and, and, and cast iron and other materials, they eventually decay. And then you've got this leaking pipe underneath a city street, and you spend a lot of your time just going through and uh, fixing it. And likewise, you know, in many of our cities where we're reliant on imported water, we have to pump that water from the lowest part of the city up into the hills where the people live. And that can be a tremendous amount of energy um, that we spend in pumping water up, and in some cases, pumping sewage back down to where we dispose of it. And so the promise of a distributed system, whether it's at the scale of uh, a household or a cluster of homes or a neighborhood, it, it has a lot of benefits in terms of uh, the overall cost of maintaining the system and the electricity that we use for pumping water. Okay, fascinating stuff. Now, how you said we're not—it's not ready for prime time. Where, where are these uh, distributed water networks? If if they're being developed, where are they being developed? What are the front lines for that technology? Well, the, so one of the reasons why they're not being developed or, or why, you know, one of the things holding them back, I'll give you a simple example, um, firefighting. If you're in a densely populated part of a city, you need that pressurized water in a distribution system to fight fires, or at least that's what we've always been told by the people who make fire insurance policies and the firefighters. But if we could find a way uh, of fighting fires without uh, relying upon a water distribution system that would free us up. So I think that that 
discussion about how we fight fires or some of the other aspects of how we deliver water um, is going to take a while to work through. So the places where I see the most potential are on the edges of our cities and in places with low population density. So the lower the population density, uh, the more expensive it is to have a water grid or a water distribution network. And so developers on the edges of cities, um, private companies and factories that are setting up in, in greenfield locations in the U.S. and internationally, um, they're all looking at this idea of becoming self-sufficient with respect to water. So I think we're going to see more um, office parks and industrial complexes and even housing developments uh, seeking to take advantage of this uh, off-the-grid approach. Okay. Let's, let's shift gears and turn to the more centralized um, water distribution system. And you had mentioned uh, essentially coastal areas and things of that nature uh, being in the water-stressed regions, and they're turning to desal and more water recycling. Could you talk a little about what, you know, what does that look like in terms of costs, um, technology, things of that nature? Well, I think both of these technologies, uh, seawater desalination and water reuse, are here. And to many people, it's a surprise uh, how well established they are. So I'll give you an example with seawater desalination. Um, in Australia, during the millennium drought that just ended uh, about five years ago, um, all of the capital cities, all the major cities on the continent were at risk of running out of water. So they each built seawater desalination plants. And the place where things turned out best were in Perth, where um, the ocean currents are thought to have shifted and the uh, amount of rainwater that they receive is decreased by about 20% from historic values. And so now Perth gets about half of its drinking water from seawater desalination plants. And that story of uh, countries or cities turning to seawater desalination when they face water shortages has been repeated in Israel recently, and also it's happening in Spain and a few other places around the world. And so seawater desalination is an existing technology. People can hire a contractor to build a massive desalination plant and they can be delivering water within a few years. The problem is the cost, and it's one of the most costly ways of uh, delivering water for a city. And so um, that's kind of, it's, it's maybe in some places the last resort after all the other less expensive approaches have been taken, or it's the approach you take when you're running out of water and don't have time to develop a more complicated approach. Um, in the case of water reuse or water recycling, uh, we've had decades, uh, you know, in the book I talk about how uh, the original water recycling facilities were, were built um, over 70 years ago, and, and that water was used in places like uh, the Grand Canyon uh, National Park or um, out here in San Francisco for uh, watering parklands. But that approach of using uh, highly treated sewage affluent to, you know, for landscape irrigation turns out to be quite expensive because now you have to build yet another water distribution network. And so the direction things are going in California and in Texas and a few other places in the United States is to use this highly treated wastewater as a drinking water supply and take the treated sewage affluent through an advanced treatment plant and put it um, 
either into the groundwater or in the case of uh, Texas, directly into the drinking water supply. And that approach of uh, potable water reuse is really uh, gaining traction in, uh, in the west and southwest of the United States. Right. And your references to California and Texas uh, are, are because of the droughts there. Uh, is is the, the pressure for water 4.0, how is the drought impacting um, that the, the implementation of water 4.0? Well, per- perhaps that could be said of, of, of Texas where the droughts hit particularly hard, but the potable water recycling uh, projects in California were um, moving ahead well before the current drought because they had been spurred on by the drought before that in the 1990s. And so each of these droughts, they'll last a few years and they'll remind the utilities and the politicians and members of the public about how important a water supply is, and they push a little bit further towards that revolution. So the current drought in California has certainly um, elevated the discussion about water reuse, and in particular, uh, the governors uh, asked the state to come up with a regulatory framework for direct potable water reuse. Um, the construction of some uh, water reuse facilities in Texas was a direct result of the drought um, uh, that's been going on for a few years. So I think it keeps pushing um, the water supply part of Water 4.0 forward. But I'm pretty confident that even if it starts raining uh, very soon, these discussions are going to continue because no one thinks that this will be the last drought that we ever see. David, you've been absolutely fantastic uh, in giving us this great lesson on where we've been with our water systems and what the future might look like. Uh, could you tell folks who want to learn more about you and your work where they can go to, to find that information? Well, they could read the book. It's Water 4.0 from Yale University Press. Um, but there's also a website for the book. Uh, it's uh, water4.0.com. Right. And, uh, and, and that's- that'll have links to um, to to the 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 research to my, my own research, but as well uh, links to the book and 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 uh, reviews and, and other kinds of resources. Right, and that that's that's water spelled out. So water numeral yep. four point p o i n t zero. Yes. Dot, water four point dot com. Uh, we'll have that on the show notes. So if you didn't catch that, it'll it'll be in the show notes. You can just check it out on the website. And I would encourage you to read the book because it is a very accessible read for the, uh, the nature of uh, the subject matter. And so I commend you for the book, uh, David. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I thank you for your time. You've been great. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Dave. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope you got a lot out of that interview with David Sedlak. He was absolutely terrific, and his book is a must-read if you're interested in water. So here are my key takeaways. First, water filtration hasn't changed much since it was brought into mass usage. With all the technological breakthroughs in the last 100 years, it's really hard to believe that a lot of the slow sand filters that we use today for water filtration are very similar to the filters that were used back in the early 20th century. My next takeaway is the potential rise of distributed water systems. Most people are familiar with distributed generation on the electrical grid, but distributed water systems in an urban setting are something that I have really not thought too much about, and I'm very interested to see how distributed water systems develop. Uh, My final takeaway concerns the next wave of water infrastructure solutions, and I thought David made a very poignant remark that cities in water-stressed areas will lead the way in technological innovation in water infrastructure. So 
in the U.S., Texas and California cities will be leading the charge for this next generation of of water infrastructure, which is what David Sedlak uh, indicated is, is water 4.0. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 21. And please don't be bashful about letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.